Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Claire Whitefield. She's sharing her story of uncovering the cause of her sudden onset and life-altering IBS. Claire is a really talented poet and performer, and she has a knack for making this taboo topic really funny and accessible, but she does not shy away from the harsh realities. In our conversation afterward, we discuss everything from the experience of revisiting dark periods in our lives, the power of performance, listening to our bodies, navigating the tube, and more. But first, let's listen to her story recorded live at 21 Soho. I have taken a shit in every single royal park. It started in my mid-30s, working for a tech company, living on coffee and Diet Coke, skipping meals and drinking too much. You know, normal 30s stuff. One day, I got a Greek salad for lunch. I opened the plastic container, put a fork full to my mouth, and a voice in my head said, a voice I recognize as the knowing, said in a very calm, straightforward way, this will make you very ill. And so, of course, I ignored it and gobbled everything up, from pecan olive to creamy feta, gone. This wasn't the first time I'd shrugged off this voice. You know, the one that tries to keep you safe, the one that whispers, don't do it. In fact, I'd spent the entirety of my 20s blasting through its sage warnings and come out intact. So why should this be any different? Life in my mid-30s was relatively calm. What could a Greek salad do to me? But the next morning, I was really ill. Jets of brown water shooting out of my ass like lasers for hours. It was hideous. But I had a date that night, so I swallowed three Imodium and got drunk. The next morning... Same scenario. Almost upon waking, I run to the loo. And it was the same story the next day and the next, the same a week later, then a month later, then a year. What was acute had become chronic, and I was running to the bathroom at least eight times a day, clenching my tingling sphincter and praying I'd make it. Needing to shit suddenly is not an easy symptom to manage. I'd have seconds before, whoosh, a full system evacuation. Which is why I shat in so many parks. And not just in London, but all over the place. I went al fresco in Cornwall, Portugal, Margate, Surrey. Because when you gotta go, you gotta go. I could be anywhere one minute and I'd be fine. And then the next, a pain would kick in in the top of my colon and I'd have moments to find a bathroom, a bush or a plastic bag. My therapists asked me if there's anything I can think of that could be causing this. No, nothing. I... I just ate a dodgy salad. I'm on the overground, and that familiar pain kicks in. I start shaking and sweating. I focus on my breath. Please not here. Not now. We're in between stops, and I can't get off. I run through my options. At Highbury and Islington, the nearest loo is the Cock Tavern. At the Camden Road, it's the Arms. And at Hampstead Heath, it's that public loo by M&S. Anyone with my kind of bowel issues has a very special form of the knowledge. Taxi drivers know roads and shortcuts. We know toilets and pit stops. I work out I can hold on till Camden Road. I get my oyster out ready to slam on the barriers. Every second counts. The train pulls into the station. I fly down the stairs, crash through the pub doors and Usain bolt it to the loo. I buy a bottle of water as I leave. 
It's a guilty pay-to-poo tax because, as they always tell you, the toilets are for customers only. 25 times in two days. That's my record. I kept a tally chart on the blackboard in my kitchen because I was in equal parts impressed, fascinated, and appalled. And I think we've all done that. Looked behind us into the bowl and gone, oh my God! But also, wow! How is that even possible? And over that 48-hour period of 25 trips to the loo, I ticked off every menu item on the Bristol stool scale, from rabbit droppings to soft serve, and went through every colour from baby poo yellow to autumn leaf brown to deep bleach green. And just in case you are wondering how it's possible, it's because you've got 28 feet of intestines, which is about the width of a tennis court. Dealing with them... Oh, that's an interesting fact. Oh, you are welcome. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Dealing with emergency shits is actually really embarrassing. It's upsetting and a real intimacy killer. I felt a lot of shame around it. And for a good long while, I hid, minimized or masked what was happening. I didn't tell work and downplayed it with my boyfriend. I never left the house without a full packet of Imodium and always carried a backup pair of leggings or trousers. Eventually, I stopped going out through fear of orbiting too far from a toilet and would go days without eating. When you're this ill, it makes you desperate. You'll try everything to heal. And I certainly did. I went to doctors, specialists and consultants. Eastern, Western, New Age, esoteric. Four gastroenterologists as well as a shaman, a Shaolin monk and a Chinese doctor. My therapist kept needling me. Do you think it could be related to what you went through in your 20s? No. (laughs) No way. That was a lifetime ago. Yeah, it was tough, but it was ages ago. There's no way that what happened then is connected to what my gut is doing now. I tried acupuncture, herbalism, reflexology, low FODMAP diets, food diaries, and going alcohol and caffeine free. I went to a body worker in a Notting Hill basement who made micro adjustments to my aura and a healer who claimed to dislodge stuff from my heart chakra with a multicolored vibrator. (laughs) True story. Um... What I had was labelled irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, an umbrella term for a host of symptoms they can't find a clear cause or remedy for. My therapist kept on with his theory, suggesting the origins lay in my past. I was indignant. No, that was such a long time ago. It's not relevant anymore. I told you, I just ate a funky salad. The NHS tested me for everything, from Crohn's and celiac to H. pylori and helicobacter, but nothing. They couldn't find any reason why I was so ill. And nothing, nothing was making me better. Then I found a naturopath on Insta, as you do, who changed my life. She became my gut guru. She was able to explain to me in a way that clicked, that really made sense about the connection between your emotions and the gut and how chronic perpetual stress can change your gut bacteria and cause inflammation, both things that can lead to urgency and IBS. Mine was a really long road back to wellness. I was on about 20 supplements a day for three years and a high-octane probiotic. It was slow and painstaking and not without close calls. I mean, what would you do if you needed the loo and your flatmate's boyfriend is in the shower and can't hear you banging on the door? If you're me, you go shit in a plastic bag. It was only as my body started to calm down that I was able to make sense of why this had happened to me. Eating that Greek salad, I heard the knowing. 
that steady, certain voice trying to keep me from harm, telling me not to proceed. It was the same voice I'd heard most of my 20s. I lived in a constant state of high alert, fearing the worst and desperately trying to prevent it. I put myself in so many bizarre and extreme situations, and that voice, the knowing, tried to keep me safe, said, don't do it, but I overrode it again and again. I was in my 20s. I thought I was invincible. I was also righteous and determined, driven by willpower and a fierce calling to protect. And I kept stepping in because no other help was coming. I didn't think about my well-being or imagine I'd suffer any side effects. I realize now that I breached my body's capacity to withstand and ingested more distress than my system could cope with. We've all heard the expression, shit, scared. That's because shitting can be a fight-or-flight response to terror. And I guess that's why my guts needed to convulse and writhe so violently, trying to shake out a decade of stress and fear. As Basil van der Kolt says, the body keeps the score. Truth is, I'm not still fully better. My guts will never be entirely normal, and I still don't always listen to the nudges from that little voice inside. And writing this, I also realise I still can't talk about that decade easily, openly, or in any more than broad brushstrokes. I'm still caged by a need to protect. But in my own way, I am getting there. I'm older now, wiser, more in tune with my body. And if you ever need to know where your nearest loo is, I'll happily share my knowledge. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. It is so good to see you. You too. It's been a while since I did that piece. So it's... I know. How does it sound to you hearing it back after a little while? I think what strikes me the most is how forthright, how forceful, how confident I sound in the beginning of it and then how much that sheen peters off towards the end as I get into the telling. Like I think I start in real performer mode and gradually that slews off or yeah, falls off as the piece continues. But what's really lovely is, is hearing all the laughter, like, uh-huh. you know, how you can use humour or how humour is used to skewer or throw light on even the most difficult situations. And I'd forgotten all the laughter in the room. And that's really lovely. It's really lovely to make people laugh, even about like the worst things. It was just, it's really lovely to hear the reception to that story again. What I think we're hearing in the room is acknowledgement, relatability, even if someone doesn't themselves suffer in the same way or hadn't suffered in the same way. I think there were a lot of people who felt that they could connect to the idea of something that they experienced as shame being talked about Mm. in an open and funny and candid way. So I think that's part of what you accomplished that night. Yeah, the poo taboo, deconstructing or um, uh, eradicating the poo taboo, the shame around it. I wonder if you heard it directly. I heard it from so many people who talked about either their own situation or a close relative or a friend, and they were really, really just moved and touched and appreciative yeah, somebody, of you giving yeah. voice. Yeah. Somebody came up to me afterwards, um, a young woman, and she said, thank you so much for that. I've got IBS. I've sat at the furthest row back from the stage, the one closest to the loo, listening to your story. And she was like, I just felt like I was meant to be here this evening to hear that. And that was that really, really, really moved me. So yeah. your story moved me on the night. 
and it moved me listening to it today. Like, I feel very emotional. Do you as well? Yeah, I do. And that feels kind of like strange to be moved by your own story. But I think listening to it back, I'm like, wow, that was such a hard time. You did so well. You did so well to get through that because this was like a daily onslaught and... Mm. And it made the rest of living so difficult. Like I, I remember I was thinking about it today before I came here. And I remember one time I tried to go shopping for food because at certain points being ill, I was like, is something I'm eating making me ill? And I remember calling my mum from a supermarket and just crying in front of like the fruit and vegetables being like, I don't know what to eat. I do not mm. know what to put in my body. I'm, I'm really scared. I'm so poorly. So hearing it back, like to, to be able to find lightness in it is, is really interesting because it was not a joyful or humorous or light time. And the shame was so great and the embarrassment was so great and how secretive I was about it. And it has been truly liberating. I remember like, the, I mean, it took me a long time to get to the place of being like, I've got IBS or meeting someone new and being like, I've got IBS. And the first time I sort of was really open about it was actually very recently. Like I, I went down to um, Stonehenge for solstice last year and, for, and then was a train strike afterwards so it meant that I had to get a minibus back with a whole group of strangers and you know I'd never met anybody before we were literally hanging out of a bus stop and we started decided to hire a taxi and I said I'll come with you but I've got IBS so basically if we need to make an emergency stop in the hard shoulder or we have to pull over to a petrol station in five seconds notice like is that cool with everybody and everyone was like yeah that's totally fine and I was like that had taken me probably about seven years of living with this to get to that point where I could just be really vocal about it but the peace and and physical release the the calmness that's in my system now I feel able to talk about it is very much I think part of the healing process not being trapped by the shame around it feeling able to talk about it but that is a long journey and I couldn't have got there any quicker but being able to be open about it has really changed how I understand my symptoms and how I live with myself in this condition which is sort of still ongoing yeah how are you day to day I still I mean it's not as bad it's not eight times a day anymore it might just be like twice a day. Um, when you say twice a day, is that where you really have the urgency yes, and it's urgency. immediate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because you could have a normal yeah, yeah, bowel yeah. movement it's where you have just, some warning and you have five yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about 20 seconds. Yeah, well, it's not as bad as 20 seconds because I, I know my body really well now. Like I know what the preliminary signs are. I know what the trailers are of like a, <laughs> the teasers and the trailers are of like an, <laughs> an oncoming bout of IBS. And so... I'm hypersensitive to the signals in my body and and it's not as bad as 20 seconds, although like it it used to be less than 20 seconds. But now, I mean, I I know that I will, if I get a twinge or a spasm or a pain, I'm probably going to have to find a loo in like a minute. But then I've learned breathing techniques and stuff, which can slow that down. And I think what's left now for me is the anxiety of it, of, of having like an IBS attack in somewhere I'm not prepared. So I still now, even when I go by tube, I am just so flushed with panic. Most mm. tube journeys I take, because for me, that's the most vulnerable space I can be in where I can't get off quickly. And so I'm, I'm trying even now to sort of manage the anxiety of travel. It's anxiety. It's not connected to actuality because most of the time now when I travel, I'm fine. It's this echo. It's this memory of traveling so much when I was really, because I had to get off the tube every day in the morning commuting for about two years, even though it's not as bad as it was, it still lives inside me. And yeah. when you talk, Claire, about going to the dark place and shedding light and making, in some case, fun yeah. or just letting us laugh, having the release of laughing about something, the way you do that with language is pretty remarkable. Oh, what? I remember the first time I heard that first line, you shared it in a workshop 
and you said, I have taken a shit in every Royal park. And I thought I've got to hear this story. I've got to hear this story. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about your use of language and writing and performing and how that's part of who you are and also this healing process? Sure. My background in writing is performance poetry and spoken word. So that is where I, I come from. I've performed spoken word since I was in my 20s. I did my first ever slam in Notting Hill when I was about 24 I didn't win but I felt like Eminem at the time and it was the, it was the <laughs> most alive I'd ever felt in my life and I was like I, I need to commit myself to this what do you mean uh, you were alive like what what was it like for you I feel very much feel when I'm performing I am tapped into the current of the earth and you get this blast that comes through you it is not always necessarily of you but there is something that comes through you and and I think this is one of those stories like I didn't want to, but f- I had to tell this story and you gave me the opportunity to tell it. Like it had been bubbling away maybe in various different bits of pieces, but without the call to like share it that you gave me, the true story gave me, it would never have existed. But I think there's something about standing up in front of a, a crowd of people and you're like, this is the moment you're on now. And there is a surge. I feel very much when I'm in front of people that, yeah, there's, there's a surge that comes through you in a desire to share. And I'm a conduit for something else well, that without sounding too it, like spiritual and woo woo. But I, be, I do really believe that because that's what I feel. And yeah. it's what I felt listening and also watching you because I remember you made a really distinctive clothing choice. Yeah. I mean, I thought if, you ha- if you're going to talk about shitting, you have to look like the least likely person to um, shit. So for the sake of a podcast, I think I wore a cornflower blue dress with lots of other floral patterns on it. I mean, and it, it was... was stunningly <laughs> gorgeous yeah, yeah. and it will be the cover of okay, the podcast fine, fine, so fine. people will so be able to see, see it. the dress yeah it's so gorgeous but, but I felt that there really needed to be that juxtaposition I felt the story had to be somehow incongruous with the teller like I didn't want to give a preview of what I might I mean I don't know how I would have walked on stage looking like a shit but I don't I didn't <laughs> want to give it I didn't want to I, I kind of wanted to wrong foot people because I I wanted that first line to be really unexpected and I think if you saw me you wouldn't have thought in a million years that that's what I was the story I was about to embark on so that's exactly that was deliberate right. that was that's a deliberate exactly right. sartorial choice well yeah. I yeah. loved it I thought it was a brilliant <laughs> choice and so you mentioned that you're still not fully better but clearly you had some interesting important resources that helped you yeah. like the naturopath and I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about having seen that parade of specialists Ugh. and tests and assessments and processes etc that you meet this naturopath mm. on Insta of all places and somehow it clicks and suddenly something came together for yeah. you. Yeah, so she is incredible. Her name is Eve Kalinic. She's a specialist in the gut and uh, the microbiome. And she's also a specialist in mental health and the gut and the microbiome. And I remember my first meeting with her. I met her face to face and I described my symptoms and she was like, okay, like, I hear what you're saying. You need to do like a three-day stool test she came back with like just a list of things that you know where my microbiome was out of whack where the the bacteria were all off and for me that became like a roadmap for getting better because the NHS only approach it functionally I only ever had sort of functional tests never looking at the microbiome but the microbiome is what is impacted when you are under chronic stress like chronic stress affects the gut in several ways it causes like motility issues which is why I experienced the urgency and stress also affects the bacteria in your mm-hmm. gut I mean I credit her with really and I don't mean this lightly saving my life mm-hmm. I was in such a dark place and without her help I don't know where I don't actually know where I'd be because living had become quite 
quite difficult. And that sounds really melodramatic, but I think when you're dealing with symptoms like this every day and it's relentless and you don't know what's causing it, I was like, I don't, I can't, I just don't know what to do anymore. And so meeting her, her was absolutely transformative. Um, and it was a long road to getting better. You know, it was a protocol of about 30 supplements for several years. I changed the way I ate. And the supplements are presumably helping to rebuild your yeah, microbiome? Like pro- probio- and- yeah, probiotics, prebiotics, antiparasite stuff. My illness was kind of behind the curve. Like the, the knowledge floating around right now about gut health and nutritional health and how the, you know, the gut-brain axis work together is very now. It's very of the moment. Whereas Absolutely. Like, like Tim Spector's Yeah, work Tim Spector, and- exactly. So, it, so I think the general consciousness is a bit more elevated about it. There's just a lot more awareness. But when I was, when I was struggling, like it was completely unknown zone. I was like, microbiome, what? Also understanding myself was part of this. Now I was adamant. I'm not an anxious person. I perform. How can I be? How can I be anxious? But I realise that that is also part of who I am and that mm-hmm. is part of managing this as well is learning to deal with my anxiety. When when I was at my most sick, I was touring my show. Wow. So I would be eating nothing all day except Haribo, boshing several Imodium um, in the dressing room and then going on stage and performing for an hour. When did you know that you were a performer? What was your background? Um, I grew up in Weybridge in Surrey and performed at school like did drama and was in plays but I remember going to the Edinburgh Fringe when I was 13 and just being so blown away by the whole spectacle you know the colour the noise the people the acts the clowns you know the juggling like three pounds a ticket back then for a child and I remember being so enchanted and knowing like I really want to come back here and do something and at that point I didn't know I could write I didn't know I could perform I didn't know I had that side to me but I just knew at some stage that that was what I wanted to do and then much much later in life through you know writing a lot of poetry I got a seed commission from Apples and Snakes to write a 20 minute poem that then became the show that I took to the fringe twice called the cobbler from kerala and then it got picked up and then i toured it for several years around the uk but i didn't know as a child i, I mean i did english for a level but i didn't do english at uni and it was always i remember at 14 it was a real surprise to me that not everybody wrote poetry <laughs> and it was only in later life i sort of realized that ah oh, this is like a small little candle a small little light that that i carry and yeah. in a way you talked about even this story that you wrote and then performed playing a role in you making sense of what you had experienced. Mm, yeah. I personally find yeah. writing, journaling, getting some distance from what I'm experiencing through words yeah. to be super helpful in a healing process or even just a growth process, just moving yeah. oneself forward. Yeah. And that's what I thought I was hearing when you were describing, even hearing this story back today. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think the power of giving something a beginning, a middle and an end a three-part structure and being able to look at a section of your life like that that's something that happened that you've moved through that is resolved or or, or you know or maybe petering out to its final notes was really important because it gave a structure and a meaning even even the making people laugh through telling that story has given what I went through a different kind of meaning for me is is all art catharsis is all it does all trauma have to become art just to give it purpose and meaning and and some part sometimes I think yes definitely but that's that's also what it gave to me it was an opportunity to 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 package something up to make sense of it for me and to share it and then in the reverb of the laughter to be validated to be heard to be listened to particularly about something that I'd kept so private and was so ashamed of was really freeing. And do you think that's the process you just had to go through? Or would you wish that you gave more voice 
to what you were experiencing earlier? Or was this just the right timing for you? Yeah, I do. But I don't think I could have. I, I don't think I. But as soon as I think I realize as soon as you skew a shame, it pops it, you know, and, it, mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and it's like a balloon. It just bursts and it goes. Like as soon as you find the, the ability to do that about something, it's hold trapping you. Yeah, I mean, of course I do wish, but I just, I wasn't that person. It took me a long time to become the person that could speak about this. And there probably were people, loads of people in the room that day that had gut stuff. And it's just nice to see yourself and other people or for other people to see themselves in you. And I had a, like a funny little moment like that at Glastonbury over the last weekend where, I don't know, I was just wandering through a field and I saw like a six pack of Imodium on the floor. And I'm like, I'm not the only one that carries it around. And I was like, I actually feel quite good about that. I was like, there's one of my people, like, yeah, go gut team. And it was just a kind of like, I'm not the only one that suffers from this because guaranteed whatever it is, you won't be. Literally everyone in the room, I think, could relate to the idea of being at some point in one's life caught short. By, yeah. Yeah. yeah, caught short, exactly. Or leaving behind evidence of your mm-hmm. shame of mm-hmm. having to use the toilet and worrying who's going to walk in after you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. on some level, it's just really, really relatable. Yeah. So I think that's part of why it was very, very easy for people to make a connection with yeah. what you were saying, even if it wasn't their exact experience of life. One of the things I'm curious to hear you talk about is this concept of the knowing. Mm. And when did you give this label, this name to this intuition, to this inner voice, the knowing? As I remember that story of picking up the Greek salad, like it was almost as if the entire world crystallized around this fork full of salad I was putting to my mouth. And it was a, just a very clear voice, very matter of fact, but absolutely certain this will make you very ill. And it was so clear, this is truth and this is going to happen. But I completely ignored it. The fact is I don't have that kind of connection all the time with everything. But I remember that coming through so clearly at that time in a very amplified way. And I guess from that point, it made me look back or or definitely in this retelling or kind of understanding how I'd let my body kind of my gut disintegrate to such a point that I was so ill. I think we all have that voice that says you know, don't don't overstretch yourself in this direction. Or you know when you've exceeded a boundary or pushed beyond what you feel comfortable with because of reasons, whatever they might be. But there is something that is very quiet. And I think you always know what it is, which knows exactly what's right for you. And you can choose to ignore it. And that's fine. And some transgressions will be absolutely okay. But in my case, I think the more I continued to do that, the greater the transgressions became until I just let a lot of things go without stopping myself, without listening to that voice. And were you experiencing IBS symptoms before that Greek salad? No, I was absolutely Joe Bowles blog normal completely Mm -hmm. until that salad. So I think it was probably like a pretty severe case of food poisoning. And then I just didn't look after myself. But I mean, it kicked off from like the following day forever. So I didn't really have a reprieve. And this idea of the knowing and that we all might have it. Do you have any practices that you use to be in touch with that? Do you know what for me really works? And I think, and and I've only discovered this really late in life because I've tried meditating for years and that did not work for me at all. And then I came across affirmations and things that bubble up that feel right and true in that window between sleeping and awaking, like things that will just pop up. And affirmations, obviously, because I love words, it seems so simple. Of course, I should have started using affirmations before. This is like, of course, uh, 
I've been like this become is your vehicle. So, yeah, this is my vehicle. I've become such a guiding light. So maybe maybe not so much to tap into my intuition, but definitely as a way to kind of change my mindset and calm me down. I found affirmations really powerful. But I think just by the nature of having IBS, I'm much more in touch with myself because I've had to be I've had to spend a lot of time just me and my body. I think I'm very sensitive anyway, full stop. But I'm also very permeable as well. And I think that's part of IBS as well. Like you, um, you absorb a lot of other people's stuff. Oh, sure. As well. Well, I can personally relate to what you're describing, not to quite the same degree, but just feeling that I have intolerance after intolerance around food. Mm. And for the longest time, I just ignored it because I had this mental model of myself as being hearty mm-hmm. and strong. And I would just eat whatever I felt like, yeah. even though I was, in fact, running to the toilet many yeah, times yeah, a day. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was normal. Yeah, I thought it was normal. Then I started vo- uh, voicing it. And my colleague one time said to me, you really have a tender tummy. I was like, I do. That's a nice expression, a yeah, tender tummy. a tender yeah. tummy. And so then I started paying attention to it. As I've become more intrigued by the gut microbiome and the work of these interesting scientists who are really trying to help us understand it, mm-hmm. I've just started paying more attention. Like really just noticing what happens when I eat certain Mm -hmm. things. I now feel that my body will tell me almost instantly if I've taken a bite of something that's not going to go well. Yep. Yep. And I can catch it and say, I'm not going to finish that. Yeah. It's not for whatever reason. It's It's cooked in butter. I didn't realize it or whatever it is. And I feel excited by how much body knowledge there is, like how much wisdom there is in our bodies. I'm thinking for you, the affirmation piece, like the being in touch with the language, the way of making sense of your experience through words. Mm -hmm. Someone else's might be more physical, might be more silence, might be more about breathing, whatever it is. Like, How do you get yourself into a space where you can pay attention to what your body is telling you? Our bodies tell us so much. So much much all the time. All the time. And I think being in the quiet, though, I've got to admit that they're like, you can tune into yourself best when it's quiet so if that ends up being I find walking actually really helpful I go for lots of walks I've got a little dog Huxley and walking a lot has done that for me as well just to be in nature and to be quiet and and I think there's something about just you know foot foot to the floor and just moving stuff through your body that moves stuff through your head so I think I get a lot of clarity um, from that as well and you're speaking of many things that where there's an increasing amount of science to support what mm. you're saying, like being in nature, having yeah. some space around you, all of those things can be so helpful to ultimately getting in touch with your own yeah. knowing. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing, the other topic that your story naturally raises is whether or not our cities and our societies are supportive of people with this kind of condition. Mm. I mean, it seems really extreme that there's some meaningful percentage of the population that suffers that has this kind of condition and they're all looking for the loot. Yeah. And silently, quietly, because most people still carry all the the shame. I did look, there is a card you can get. There's a laminated card you can get, which is like, I have a bowel condition. I need to jump the queue. You can also get key fobs, I think, for some of the disabled toilets. So you can just smash your key fob in and then you've got access to a loo. But I often thought when I was traveling by TFL, like I know they have loos down there. But the amounts of times, like I'd be like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sick, I'm ill, or I'd lie, I'd say, you know, like I'm pregnant, I've got morning sickness or like whatever, make up any excuse to be able to use a TFL, you know, one of the staff loos, because, you Mm -hmm. know, I didn't think I'd make it up you know, four escalators. And sometimes they were like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And sometimes they weren't. And I would just be like, this levels of stress that just skyrocket when you, it's panic. It's just pure panic that you're not going to find a toilet. So it did make me think a lot about like accessibility issues. And also, if I'm honest as well, like 
older people who might be urinary incontinent or what that's like trying to navigate a city or take the tube and and also like even taking like trains back to my parents like there's not always a toilet on the train or a working toilet and just the stress that that must put people under it's huge I know because I've been one so um yeah it did make me think a lot about yeah access to services and facilities and I think that what your story and not just your willingness to tell us your personal experience, but to do it so poetically and so beautifully <laughs> with such fantastic language and gorgeous delivery, I think it just created a space for people to either feel seen or feel their empathy dial up for people that they might or might not realize are dealing with anything similar or the same as what you were describing. I feel that your willingness to give voice, to share your own story, to do it so beautifully created an environment where people could be both empathetic, sympathetic, feel seen, feel feel heard, mm. feel connected. And I think that was such a gift to our community and now this oh, podcast really audience. Thank you so, so much for sharing it. And thanks so much for being here and talking more about it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's storyteller and conversation, check out the show notes. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. More information about our live shows and workshops can be found at truestorylondon.com. And just one more thing. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us to reach more people. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.